You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Philip Glass is considered one of the most influential composers of the 20th century. By 1976, his landmark opera, Einstein on the Beach, was staged by Robert Wilson to a baffling variety of reviews. At the time, his compositions were so avant-garde that he had to form the Philip Glass Ensemble to give them a venue for performance. Although called a minimalist by the Western classical mainstream, he denies this categorization. His major works include opera, theater pieces, dance, song, and film scores. This year, his score for the Richard Eyre film, Notes on a Scandal, has been nominated for an Academy Award. Philip Glass, congratulations on your nomination. Thank you. How are you feeling about that? Uh, well, I'm, surpri- I'm a little surprised. I mean, I think it's a terrific film, and I... I, I did the best work I could on it, uh, but I thought it, the film was kind of edgy for Academy considerations. I didn't really expect a lot to happen from that point of view. I mean, it's done well, but I thought it touches on a number of taboo subjects, and the Academy doesn't usually go for that kind of thing. Uh-huh. But uh, when I, I looked around what was around this year, and the whole there's no Titanic this year, and there are a lot of interesting odd films around and from that point of view it's maybe not that odd well yeah and i think it, it's time for you too you've, you've done magnificent work and it's <laughs> it, you you deserve it well but, you know well, you can say it about marty scorsese he's been nominated and this is his seventh nomination he's yet to win it win mm-hmm. so i mean if he had to wait seven times i'm not too sanguine about what might happen <laughs> Uh, how, how did you come on board this project? Uh, well, uh, Scott Rudin called me in April, and I think I saw that. Uh, I think uh, Richard Iyer was there at that time. I believe we saw it together. It was a rough cut. Uh, but uh, as these things go, uh, looking back on it, the rough cut wasn't all that rough. That, that didn't mean there, were, there was another three months of cutting to go with it uh, and refinements and uh, reflections on it. And it was a very thoroughly uh, thought through and worked through film by the time it got done. But even so, at that moment in April, I could see what was happening. The performances were outstanding. The the idea of the film was a slow revelation of the characters of these two women. That was already there at the beginning. How did that work? Well, when, you, yeah. when you're composing this, uh, what was the first thought that came to your mind when you're looking at the film? What What's the process at that um, stage? My first assessment was completely wrong, yeah. which was that this would be an easy film and it wouldn't take me long. <laughs> no. <laughs> that was wrong, 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 wrong. <laughs> it wasn't an easy film and it took a long time. Yeah. And, and partly, uh, I didn't get back to work on it, I think, for two months. I think they finally called and, and Scott said, okay, we're ready to start. It might have been May, end of May. Uh, there had been a good pause on my side, not on their side. And when I saw it again, I thought, well, I, I had other things to do that summer. In fact, I spent a good part of the summer on that on that project. How does that work? Are you writing as the film is? Uh, no, we had a you had, we had a, a, not a director's cut, or what they call, but we had a we were getting into a fine cut at that mm. point. There weren't big changes after that. Here's how it worked: we did it reel by reel. I would take the first reel, and I mm. would write music for the first reel. My assistance, we would make a demo tape, which would be a MIDI version of it. Instead of uh, um, acoustic instruments, we used the synthesizers yeah. to 
make a sound alike of the score. We had already divided it into, uh, I think, the first meeting with uh, Richard, I went over the whole film and, and we determined where the cues would go. There would have been about 25 or 26 cues, something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the exact number. And then I began with Real One and then we would get together and look at Real One and I would get notes from them and went on through Real, uh, through Real Six. And by that time, we could look at a version of the film with a version of the score. At that point, um, we did a complete rewrite. And that was interesting. So then I had to do the whole thing again. What, what uh, were the difficulties on that? Are they, well, uh, what was the rewrite well, about? It, it, I wouldn't say it was difficult. I would say, and I think in, in all fairness to everybody in concern, is that our ideas collectively began to evolve about what the film was about. Uh-huh. And this was surely a case where the director and the composer and, and, the, and the producer, uh, in this case, Scott Rudin, that we began to understand the film as we were working on it. That our first read of the film was only uh, one level of what the film was about. And as we worked on it longer, we got into deeper and uh, more subtle interpretations of what was happening. And as we did that, the music had to change with it. And some of the, uh, the editing changed. So that this process of refinement and ending, which went on for another couple of months, so it was a result of our more, and I would say collectively our, not just myself, but I, I saw that Richard was doing the same thing, and, and Scott, who was, likes to look at everything, he was going to do the same thing. We were collectively and individually reassessing what we were trying to do and what the music should be doing. And to answer your next question, <laughs> uh, uh, we began with the first, I'll give you a good example, we began with the first image of Barbara sitting on the bench. Barbara, uh, a kind of a spinsterish elderly history teacher in a, one of these schools in London. Not exactly elegant, but kind of more refined than her environment, if you might, if I can put it that way. When you saw okay. in the context of the school, she did... She seemed like she was uh, a social level above the people she was teaching, yeah. um, certainly. And, and what we were trying to do, and we tried to say, well, what is the music trying to say in this? What are we trying to say about the character? And the film really becomes about the revelation of who Barbara is, uh, the whole trajectory of the film. And I could say that's true of Sheba as well, the, the Cape Blanchett part. But let's talk about Barbara for the moment. Uh, we're talking about a woman who seems interesting and a little bit, eccentric perhaps, but also there's an element of, about her which is a little disturbing, and, and Richard uh, wanted that to be in the, uh, in the music from the beginning, that the music hinted at something that was going to happen without actually saying it, and this became the, I can say, the strategy of the music throughout, that uh, as we go through the picture, uh, the music is keeping pace, and also uh, it's keeping pace and re- with the re- revelation of her character, and yet, at the same time, we can't get too far ahead of the film. We can't give away what's going to happen. And we, at the same time, we don't want it to appear as if it's a done deal, whatever we're looking at. We have to know that what we're looking at is an evolving perception mm-hmm. of a character. And by the time we get to the end, when Shiva runs out outside and says, here I am, and she's surrounded by the paparazzi, and then she goes inside, and uh, this is just, it's just more or less destroyed Barbara's apartment, and mm-hmm. they have this... This, these final moments together, by that time, uh, we have a very different idea of who these women are. Outside of the technical aspects of it, how does scoring for a film different from scoring for an opera? It doesn't differ very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the actual writing doesn't differ very much. What does differ is who's in charge. <laughs> uh, uh, when I write an opera, I'm in charge. Yeah. The, uh, the opera is the composer's house. 
In the same way, when I did a score for Jerry Robbins, uh, a ballet for him, he was in charge. Mm -hmm. The ballet house, the dance house belongs to the choreographer. The theater house belongs to the theater director. The opera house belongs to the composer. And um, the, the film used to be the director. Yeah. Uh, then it became the director and the producer, and now it's the director, producer, and the studio. I mean, it's gotten hmm. uh, more complicated now as hmm. we have, um, I would say, as the technology has allowed us to create more possibilities in each m movie, uh, more people have jumped in. And sometimes you, sometimes not always, with someone like Marty, that wouldn't be true. And that was not true for this film either, because it was very focused with hmm. Richard and myself, and Scott was very much involved too. But it wasn't a committee of people. I've been involved with films where there were people that you never even met <laughs> and were giving you notes. So yeah. it's kind of the way commercials are done. And that, that's not so true of independent movies, but that can be true of a studio film. It depends on the director. Yeah. And Marty doesn't do it that way. I mean, he does what he wants to do. And, but you'd be surprised that yeah. there's a lot of push and pull in the film business. The idea of, in the 60s and 70s, the idea of a, the auteur filmmaker yes. as uh, uh, Truffaut and Godard was, you know, that they were like the authors. The signature of the film was their stamp. That's eroded a lot. It depends on the people involved. But when you say with the actual writing, however, the uh, matching of image with music, when I do that, I'm alone. There's no one in the room with yeah. me when I'm doing it. The heavy lifting of writing is always the composer's job, and, and, uh, and we expect that. Now, uh, what we do do often is not just these films. I, I mean, with a wonderful filmmaker who's a documentary filmmaker, Earl Mars, wow. he yeah. demands lots of rewrites. He works very much in that way. He's not uh, casual at all about the relationship of music to image, and working with him is an extremely interesting and, and dynamic process. In the best world, that process of this dynamic relationship between the creators of the film, or whether the, the writers of the filmmaker, or the writer is rarely seen, but whether it's the filmmaker, uh, uh, the editor, and the composer, that's and the music editor, that's the dynamic that I'm seeing. That can be extremely demanding and, and interesting. Are you working with uh, Willie Allen right now? On I, finished a, a work, I finished a project with him. How was that? Was it was great. I, I loved working with him. Good to hear. <laughs> uh, he hadn't worked a lot with composers before. He was very open to ideas, and he seems to have liked what I've done. Uh, Did he bring his clarinet? <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> no, he didn't. He brought, you know, he brought, a, he brought an extremely professional a hard-working person uh, with him, and that was himself. As you can imagine, he's a very smart guy. He knows what he's doing. He's also a very, he's a, he's an artist who's very secure about himself and therefore very easy to work with mm -hmm. because he's secure about himself, he's very open to what other people have to say. You, you mentioned Errol Morris. As many of our listeners will know, you worked on Fog of War and The Thin Blue Line with him. I would imagine that's a much more collaborative uh, process than it would be with a narrative film director, generally speaking. Uh, generally speaking, that might be true, but in the case of Earl, that's not true. Earl, I have to also remind you that you may not know, he began life as a musician. Mm. He went to Juilliard was a cellist. He reads music. I mean, he's the only uh, filmmaker I know who's asked me to send him a copy of the score so he could play it at the piano. Really? Wow. I, and that's, that's, believe me, it's totally scary. Yeah. I, I don't particularly like having the, <laughs> the film director playing the music. You know, I get, uh, you know, but uh, no, he takes the music home and plays it and looks at it and thinks about it and he has ideas about it and he moves it around and you have long talks with Earl. He works it. It's, is as easily as um, obsessive and uh, 
how can I say, yeah. directive in a, a, a way as working with someone working on a narrative film. And uh, the reason I brought him into the conversation was the difference between a documentary and a narrative film. In inner dialogue and the things that you talked about for a narrative film, it's got to be a little different. Maybe a little different, but don't forget, let's take Fog of War. Maybe he had 24, 30 hours of film with, with McNamara. Uh-huh. He boils that down to a, a, an, a, into an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're talking about a 10 to 1, mm-hmm. a, a 20 to 1 ratio, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. 20 and a half hours to 25 hours to, to an hour and a half, or maybe 15 or 18 to 1. That leaves the documentary filmmaker a tremendous leeway mm-hmm. in terms of what he wants to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw many versions of that, and there are things that I wish he had left in, and things that he didn't leave in, and and mm-hmm. and, and he had the opportunity be, uh, through his editing and through his presentation of painting a picture in very many different ways, mm-hmm. but more than you would think. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of documentary is that it's just like, but I would say it's a, a a false perception, probably perpetuated by documentary filmmakers themselves, is that it's a kind of a cinema verite that what you're seeing is what really happened, mm-hmm. and this is. No one getting in the way of it. That's not true. Mm-hmm. So they can fabricate as much as any writer can. Mm. I've got one more question before I let you go. What are you listening to these days? What are you putting on your CD player? Or I'm putting on uh, my CD player. Or iPod. Uh, I'm putting on <laughs> demos of, uh, of a new work of mine I'm doing with Leonard Code called The Book of Longing. Oh, very good. And I'm listening to that and, and trying to figure out how to make the voices work the way I want them to. You know, I don't. I don't get to listen to music like you guys do. <laughs> I haven't. I mean, if only I could. No, it's not completely true. Uh, what I heard recently in the opera house was a fellow of Verdi, and uh, I heard uh, the magic flute of Mozart. That's the operas I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, though I would go to new operas if I. Uh, yeah, I, I like to go to hear mm-hmm. new work, but that's what happened to be around at that day. I, I go to hear uh, new music groups like, uh, beside my own group, a, a group like Bangle McCann or the Kronos Quartet, and I listen to the music that they're playing. So I, I can't say that I don't listen to a lot of music, but I tend to listen to it in the concert hall. At home, I tend to be working. Well, Philip Glass, thank you so much for this interview, and thank you so much for your work. Yeah, thank you. I'm, very, I'm very pleased we had a chance to talk. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.com dot org slash film school.